0: Uh, come to the Scripture. So let me ask you, please, to bow and let's pray. Pray together, Father in heaven. As we come to uh, consider Your Word this morning, I pray for me, for us, that You would help us. God, there's so much that can come against us to keep us from hearing, um, all the way from our general mood at the moment uh, to even Satan himself. And so, Father, I pray that uh, against all of that, uh, You would. Fight to overcome our resistance, that this word would find a home uh, deep within our minds, our hearts, souls, a transforming home, uh, that we might follow you in a way that brings you glory. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Joshua in chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11, please. I want to read. Uh, beginning with verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Joshua 11, please. Hear the word of God. So Joshua, Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from uh, Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Balgad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Now, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab and from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Now... To so come to this, just let me make a brief word. Last week I started with a brief word of introduction about these, the violence here in the book of Joshua, that this was not simply um, barbaric acts of Israel against an innocent people, but rather the judgment of God. Uh, today, I want to, 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 to just speak a word that we take up passages like this in the book of Joshua that perhaps we might skip otherwise, but to take up passages like this in the book of Joshua. Because it's the Word of God. And because these moments that we share together are really sacred, holy moments. Because, you see, we come to the Scripture and, and we look at it in some measure of detail because it tells us about God. And there's no greater pursuit that a person could have than that pursuit of coming to know God. And so that's important to us. And so so we take a great deal of time to think through these things, sometimes difficult things, but we think through them because we desire to know what, know who God is and what God is doing and how we fit into that. I mean, that's what the Bible's about. It's about God, what He's doing, and how we, how human beings, fit into that. It isn't so much about us initially, it's about God. And it's about what He's doing about who he is and how we fit into what he's doing and fit into who he is. And in these moments when we gather together, Sundays are just amazing because Sundays are days that Christians all over the world stop what they're doing. I mean, it's just an amazing thing that everybody stops what they're doing and moves from their homes, generally if that's possible and gathers with other believers for these sacred, holy moments. Now, everything that we do is sacred, and everything that we do is holy, because we do it in the presence of God. And as believers in Christ, we do it as his called-out people. But these moments are special in their own way. And that's why I refer to them as holy, sacred moments. We don't have very many of them. We only have one a week. We only have 52 a year. And given the lifespan, only so many. And it's important for us then to be detailed, to, to take our time, to think these things through. Because we trust that God is with us in these moments. That's why they're sacred. That's why they're holy. We trust when we open his word, there's a sense in which he speaks to us in ways that he might not otherwise. Even when we're home individually, even reading the scripture. But when they're together, we're together, something happens. And the grace of God comes. it's the grace, the gift of knowing God. It's the gift, the grace of knowing sins forgiven. It's the gift of assurance, knowing that we really do belong to Him. All of that happens as we gather together, as we come and, and sit under His Word together. The gift of knowing Him. The gift of understanding Him better. And so that's why we take these things up. For people who are new to us, they often come to me and say, why do we do this? Why do we spend so much time? Why are we so detailed about, about the Scripture every week like this? And Well, it's because that. Because it's the Word of God. Because these are holy, sacred moments for us. So we can't pass over. We can't pass by. And so today, as, as all the other Sundays, we're coming to try to find out who God is, what He's doing, and how we fit into that. As we've walked through the book of Joshua, we've, we've found some help here in understanding God, that he's, he's gathering for Himself a people, a people who will be His, and a people who will declare, therefore, His praises, that will glorify Him uniquely from all the other people of the world. And at this moment in history, He's taken this group of people, the Israelites, those descendants of Abraham. And he's, he's, he's called them to be his and he's made a promise to them through their father Abraham that this land will be theirs and now he's, he's bringing them into it and he's, and he's giving it to them and, and they're fighting in a sense for it but, but he's fighting on their behalf. And that's been of some help to us to see how it is that God works, that he makes promises and he's faithful to promises and then he brings us into those and he fights for us, but not without us. That here they are acquiring this land and yet they know that it's God who's at work on their behalf. And we know that in the context of our own lives too. As we come to this particular chapter, it sort of begins, it's sort of the beginning of the end of a particular section in Joshua. As we, as, we, as we start out in Joshua, in the first five chapters, they enter the land, they get in, they cross the Jordan, there they are. And then in chapter six, they begin to fight with Jericho, and then Ai, and then, then, then they go up to Shechem for that covenant renewal time. And, and then they go into the southern part of this land and, and they take it. Uh, and, and, and then now they're in the northern part of this land taking that. But at the end of, of Joshua chapter 11, we read this, verse 23, middle of verse 23. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Then chapter 12 is just a, just a laying out of all the kings that were defeated. And then come chapter 13, the land is divided. All the Israelites are together at this point and they're fighting and they're acquiring this land, this land of Canaan. Uh, beginning in chapter 13, they're going to stop that sort of nationwide fighting and each tribe is going to get its own section of land. And, and there are still some enemies in each one of those sections that each tribe will then have to go in and do battle with to drive out. But, but this is sort of the end of this big fighting. This is the end of this this time where Israel is coming to get the whole land And there'll be a sense of rest. And out of the victory that has come, then they'll go and take possession of their individual pieces of land, their individual territories. And so that's where we're coming now. And really, there's four things from this passage that catch my attention, that I I want to make mention of this morning and trust that God will help us. Verse 18 of chapter 11. Joshua made war... A long time with all those kings. Second thing that strikes me. Verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. And then the third thing that catches my attention that may not catch yours, but will after I tell you why it caught mine, verse 22. Uh, there, were, there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and Ashta did some remain. I won't spend much time there, but you'll like it. And then the last thing that catches my attention is verse 23, that they had rest from war. Now, that first thing, verse 18. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. That's surprising to me to read. Because it doesn't take very long to read chapter 6 to chapter 11. I mean, you just sort of read it, and it seems like it just, you know, a couple of days, and and, 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 uh, and that was it. I mean, it only takes 15 or 20 minutes to read it out loud, to to read that whole section. And yet, you realize that, no, 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 this took a long time. In fact, by some good calculations, if you read... Uh, through some of the numbers that are given to us in the book of Joshua, it's likely to have taken about seven years to get from chapter 6 to chapter 11, which is a long time to exclusively be at war. And there they were. My question always is, why? Why did it need to take that long? I mean, God said, this is your land. God says, I'm going to go in there and get it for you. I'm going to drive out all of these people. You need to go, but, but trust me, I'm here, and I'm God, and, and I'm going to make this happen. And, and what, my question, why did it need to take such a long period of time? In fact, God had even told them that it was going to take some time to do this. For instance, in Exodus in chapter 23, uh, we read this, verse 23, Exodus 23, 23. But when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So he's saying, listen, when when they go here, I'm going to blot them out and don't worship their gods, don't integrate with them uh, because of their false religion, because of their false gods. And then verse 27 he writes, I will send my terror before you and throw... Into confusion, all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you, and they shall drive out the Hittites, the Canaanites, and the Hivites uh, before you. And I'm thinking, great, that shouldn't take much time at all. I mean, it's got the hornets working for him. Verse 29, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land becomes desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little... I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So he's saying, listen, I'm not going to do this fast. I'm going to do it little by little. But I wonder why. Now, he gives the reason why there. He says, listen, if I drove them out all at once before you had time to occupy the land, then the wild beasts would grow up in those empty places where there are no people. And by the time you came there... The the beasts would be there and they may be worse than the people. They may cause the land to go to desolation or whatever. He says, so I have a plan. Don't worry. Take it little by little. Take it as I lead you. Take it as we go. But trust me, there really is a plan behind this. And I find that really helpful. Because I look into my own life and into our lives and I realize... I realize about me that I've been doing battle for a long time. Both on an individual level, just against my own sin. I mean, I'm fighting sins today that I've been fighting for as long as I can remember. And collectively, we fight in the context of our culture. We fight missionally. There's a world out there that doesn't believe in Jesus Many of us once belonged to it. And we remember what it's like to belong to that world that doesn't believe in Jesus. But missionally, we understand that we're fighting against unbelief in the world. We're fighting against hearts and institutions and structures and cultural norms that are against God. And we've been doing this for generations as believers, as Christians. And we've been praying... Thy kingdom come. That is, God, bring your rule here and now. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And not only are we praying that, we've been commanded by Jesus to pray that. And I keep wondering, why does this take so long? Now, I don't have any particular answer to that. I can't use the answer that he gave to them in Exodus about their particular land because it just doesn't fit. I mean, He can't say, well, he's not going to drive out your sin because... Other stuff will come in its place before you get there and it'll eat your lunch. That doesn't seem to fly spiritually. So I don't know what the particular reason is exactly, but I do know that when God takes his time, he has reasons. He took his time with Joshua and he had a reason for taking his time, getting them through the land, conquering the land. So I trust even in my own life and even in the life of the church as we enter into the culture, there's a reason why. And God knows that reason why. He gives us some sense of it. For instance, in Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 7, we read this. He says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. Meaning, it's for your training that this is taking so long. It's good for us that it's taking a while. It's good for us that that there is this constant battles going on. It's good for us because it's for our discipline, our training in godliness. And when Paul writes uh, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy in chapter 4, he says this. He says, For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, in the midst of all of this battling, both individually and collectively, both with my own heart and, and with the culture, he's saying, this is good for you. Now, a day will come when he'll wipe all that away. A day will come when I'll see Jesus, when we'll see Jesus as he is and we'll be like him. Doesn't mean we'll be God. It means it will be godly. It means it will be holy, righteous human beings there for real, deep within. So a day is going to come when that will be true, when there will be no more battles for us we will live all throughout glory in the new heavens above us on the new earth without that struggle. But right now, you say, no continue to fight these battles. It's good for you, for your training in godliness, which will have benefit, not only now, but in the world to come. And I say, well, what's that benefit? And I, I don't know exactly. Uh, if it were up to me, I, I'm, I'm sort of into the magic wand theory of sanctification. Uh, I, 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 would, I would think that it would be great If and you'd think this too about me, that if I could only leave here and be perfect, we'd all be better off. Uh, I don't think I don't I don't think that's going to happen, because he still wants us to engage in this struggle, and their enemy is still here, even residing in my own heart, and even in the culture, and in the world, and Satan, and it's all here. And he wants us to say, keep fighting. And you say, well, why do I keep up to fight my temper and my selfishness and my pride and my lust and all of that? And he says, engage. Continue to fight those kings a long time. And Why does it take so long for people to get converted? Why are some people not converted until they're 60 or they're 70? And and why is it that we have to keep after all of this? And he says, because you do. That's the way it is now. It's the way it was with Joshua. So keep fighting all those kings for a long time, for as long as it takes. And that's what we're to do. What's eating your lunch spiritually? I suspect you know what that is. I suspect it's it's on your mind right now and you can't not think about it. That thing, those things, those sins, those weaknesses that exist in you that you know if they got a hold of you utterly would destroy your life. And you fight them all the time. And I think you go back to this sentence from Joshua chapter 11, verse 18. And you see the future of your life. And it's, fight them a long time. Don't let up. God is with you. He has a purpose. He has a reason. Continue to do it. Second thing that I see in this passage Sucks the air out of me even more. Verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. I mean, we see that situation and we go, okay, I get it. Because what happened as you might remember with the people called the Gibeonites. Uh, they made peace with Israel. Um, they deceived Israel and made peace. Uh, And it wasn't a good thing because Israel wasn't supposed to make peace with the Gibeonites. But once they did, they were stuck in that. And so they never were able to drive them out. But the command of Moses was to drive out all of these other cities, to drive out all these other peoples. And the reason they were to drive out all these other peoples were, one, because this was the judge, to be the judgment of God against them. They had rebelled against God in such a way that there is no redemption for them. And so they were to drive them out utterly. Their iniquity had become complete. Their iniquity had become full. So they were to drive them out. And they were to drive them out, too, so that these nations, these cities, these peoples would not be a temptation for Israel they drive out all of their, uh, their, these foreign gods, these pagan gods, and they drive them out so that Israel wouldn't be tempted to worship them. So the scripture says now that to make sure that would happen, to make sure that these other cities, these other peoples would fight and come against Israel so that the Israelites would have to drive them out, they couldn't make peace with them then have to drive them out the scripture says that it was God's doing that he hardened their hearts that's not the first time we come across that expression we come across that expression way back in exodus in chapter 4 uh, concerning a pharaoh as God calls Moses to go and return to Egypt he says this this is Exodus chapter 4 verse 21 So God says, I'm going to be directly involved in this in a way that's called hardening his heart. And you can read about God's promise and God's action in hardening Pharaoh's heart at least seven times through these passages in Exodus. And I don't know about you, but that makes me really suck air when I read about a God who's that sovereign. And I have to think about that great passage in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. When the children are looking at the lion Aslan, who is a big, strong lion. And he's the Christ figure, of course, in that little book. But they see Aslan and and, and they, they have these mixed feelings about him. And the one kid asks the other, is he safe? And the answer is, no, he is not safe. But he's good. God isn't safe. He is our heavenly Father and He does love us and He is intimate with us. And He is Christ has died for us and all of that. But there's enough in the scripture as a believer that I read, and again it just causes me to stop. And I realize that He really is other. He really is different. He really is God. And everything serves him. And he can do whatever it is that pleases him to do. In fact, when the Apostle Paul speaks of this passage in Exodus, about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, he simply says this about God. He will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. He will show compassion on whom he will show compassion. And he will harden whom he will harden. And again, I don't have a category in my brain for that. I just know it causes me to stop before God and realize something about Him that I wouldn't otherwise realize. And that is, He isn't safe. But then the question is, is He good? Can one who is good do that? Can one who is just do that kind of thing? Enter into a person's life And harden their heart in such a way that it ensures that they'll turn away from God. And the answer is yes, it is just. Because Pharaoh and these nations and these kings and whomever God would choose to harden their hearts do not deserve anything else. Because their hearts are against God already. Already. And he could be gracious as he was to you and me, to believers in Christ. And his grace could come upon us and enable us to believe. But he doesn't have to do that. It isn't just that he gives us grace. (laughs) Justice would mean that he would condemn us and harden us. Because you see, this is a judicial hardening. This is a hardening of justice. This says, you've rebelled against me. This is you aren't mine. Therefore, I'm going to give you over to what's in your heart. And I'm going to work in such a way in everything that happens so that your heart tightens against me. Your heart becomes more stone-like against you. And I don't take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, which would be grace. But I'm going to harden so that my purposes come to pass. I'm going to harden so that I'm glorified. And again, if you're like me, words fail as you stand before one who is that sovereign. One theologian, Old Testament theologian, Ralph Davis. Some of you may remember Ralph. He teaches at RTS in Jackson, Mississippi. He was here a number of years ago teaching an Old Testament survey. He writes this about this passage. He says, Do we not find that disturbing, offensive, outrageous? Who gave God the right to be that sovereign? But our verdict had better remain in our throats. He says, don't evade the clarity of this text. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God fought for Israel. He ensured the outcome that he had promised. And he did it in his own way. Third point. This group of people in this last battle for Joshua and these people called the Anakim. Now the reason that the Anakim are so important is because they're the big people. They're the giant people. And you might remember that way back after the Israelites had left Egypt and they came to this place called Kadesh Barnea, which was an oasis, and they were about to enter the land. This was some 40 years before the days of Joshua here. They were going to enter the land under Moses. Moses sent out 12 spies. And the spies came back. And 10 of them said, there is no way. That we can capture these people. There's no way that we can enter this land. There's no way that we can take it. And the reason that they said that was because there are these huge giants in the land. And the way they put it is that we're like grasshoppers to them. I mean, they're so huge, we feel like grasshoppers. And when they look at us, they see grasshoppers. And there's no way that we are going to enter into that place and take that land. There are only two men, Joshua and Caleb, who says, No, 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 God's big enough. God's bigger than the Anakim. And so he can take them. And so it's of no small significance that at the very end of taking the land, Joshua says to us, Oh, yeah, and, and they, they got the Anakim. They sent them to flight. They cut them off. Now, there's a few of these Anakim people left, these sons of the Nephilim. In fact, one lives in Gath, whose name we'll find to be Goliath in one of these days. But could you imagine a whole city full of Goliaths? How, how intimidating that would be. Nine to ten feet tall people. Huge people. And Now you know how they felt. But, but this is to say, Don't worry, we we got them too. Which is to say that if the ten spies would have came back in the days of Moses and said, oh, we can do this, and they would have gone in, they could have. It wasn't God we had to wait for all those years in the wilderness. It was the faith of people so that they would actually trust God that he could really do this. I find it interesting. And I don't know if this is the meaning of the text or not, so just go with me on this and evaluate it. But I find it interesting that this is the very last thing that we learn about. You get the sense that it's the last group of people that's taken here. Uh, He came at that time, and, 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 and it's the last one recorded. And somehow in me takes comfort in that, wherein God is saying, listen, I'll save the biggest ones until you're ready. I'll take you through the other ones. You know, I'll take you to Jericho where you'll see some cool stuff. You don't really have to lift too much of a finger, and and I'll do most of the work, and I'll I'll show you how it's done so you can gauge, you can have some faith in me. And you'll go through maybe a time of failure uh, at AI, and you'll realize that you need to be walking faithfully with me in order to win these victories and these battles. But trust me, a day will come when you'll faith Goliath, and I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but you'll faith your own Goliaths, and they'll seem bigger than life to you. But by the time you get there, you'll be able to cut them off. Because I'm not only sovereign over the hearts of your enemies, I'm sovereign over the circumstances of your life, and I'm sovereign over your own learning process and your own faith process, and trust me. And so the Apostle Paul, I think, one day can say, Don't worry, God will not test you more than you can bear. But when that moment of deep testing comes, when you think it's more than you can bear, trust Him, He'll offer you a way of escape. He'll enable you. He'll help you so that you can endure under it. What's your biggest fear? What are you so afraid of that if that would happen, you're afraid it would destroy your whole life? God's saying, I'm sovereign over when that battle will take place. Now, my suspicion is just by the basis of my own experience and my own life, my experience as a pastor, I don't want to make you tremble, but my suspicion is that God will take you to that biggest fear in his timing and his way. And when you approach it, you'll have to trust that he really has prepared you, that he really is with you. My biggest fear in life uh, was that I would fail publicly. That was my biggest fear in life. So when I was in my 20s and I was writing a doctoral dissertation, I was afraid that it would fail. I was afraid that it would be rejected. I I was afraid that I'd get all finished with it and I would turn it into my committee and they would reject it. And so when I was 20, 30, 29 years old, I got two thirds of the way finished with my dissertation and I submitted it to this committee and they rejected it. And the most amazing thing in my life was that I continued to breathe. I, I was pretty convinced that if I ever failed publicly, I would die physically. And then I was afraid that if I didn't die physically, uh, I would die emotionally, and I would lose all my friends. And, and I didn't. They still liked me, at least as much as they liked me before. <laughs> and my wife didn't leave, and God was still there, and, oh, he'll take you to those places. I've got some others I'm not going to tell you about because they're still in the future, I trust. He'll take you to those places, those Anakims, the sons of the Nephilim, the big people. But he won't take you until the time is right. And if you're in one right now, receive this comfort that the time is right. If you're facing that big fear right now in the context of your life, the time is right. God has brought you there. Draw from the past and all that He's taught you, draw from the past and all that you know about Him, and draw from the present with all the grace that He's giving you. And He'll cut it off from your life in due time. Last point. They had rest. Now, that's a significant term. We're going to come across it again in the book of Joshua. We've talked about it before in the context of our life together, just what it means to this word rest. Because rest, you see, is where God is. God is, God lives in a place called rest. For instance, in Genesis, in chapter 2, in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them... And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, when we talk about God living in rest, we don't mean that he's inactive. He's still active. If God ceases to be active, we cease to be. Right? So God is active, sustaining uh, all that is, and working out his purposes. So he's active in that way. What he rests from is his creation. And when he rests, you see, he takes a seat. And when he takes a seat, he takes a seat to rest upon a throne. And so when we think about God resting. What we're saying is that God is the king. God is the Lord over all that is. He really is the sovereign one. When we think about God resting on the seventh day, what the Bible is telling us it means that God is the sovereign one over all that he has made. And so he sits there as the Lord, ruling and reigning. He's resting. Now you get the sense that Adam and Eve were to live under the rule and reign of God, that is... They were to live in God's rest. You get that impression because when we get to this point in the creation description of six days and then a seventh day, there is no evening and morning to the seventh day. It doesn't seem to end. God's just simply resting on this seventh day. Now, there will be evenings and mornings and... 24-hour days and all those kinds of things because of the sun and the moon and the spin of the earth and all that kind of thing that God made to be. But you get the sense that God's rest lasts as he's Lord over all that he's made. In fact, Adam and Eve created on this sixth day, as it is stated, wake up the next day in the seventh day. I've always thought it'd be great, that it's great that you, you know, your first day, full day on earth is a day off. Because God is saying, rest, enter my rest, I'm the Lord, I've got it under control, I'm the sovereign one over you and everything else. Place your trust in me, walk with me, let me direct your life. And so you see, as long as we're obeying God, living under his lordship, voluntarily yielding joyfully to him, then we too... Live in this rest because we're living in the kingdom. We're living under the rule of God. And that's perfect rest. Unrest happens when we rebel against him. Unrest happens when we move out, at least in our own understanding, of his lordship and his definition and direction for our life. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, it created unrest in their souls. They were cursed. They were condemned. And they were expelled from the very rest of God. Now the great promise of God is that that rest will be restored. And so as we read through the Old Testament, we see it play out in the restoration of this rest. And even here, because he gave Israel two signs of this rest. One was this seventh day. One was this Sabbath day when they were to stop and they were to rest and they were to live in the sovereign rest of God. They were to live in that day commemorating the fact that he is their Lord. He's the Lord over their time, so they take the seventh day. He's the Lord over their lives and so they worship him on that day. And that whole day is different. It's set aside. It's saying we're living in the rest of God On this day, we're ceasing from our work. For God is our provider, and God is our protector. And the second thing that he gave them to show that they were to live in his rest was land. And when there was no war, they were at rest from all the hostilities against them. And here now they find themselves at rest. But this rest, of course, wasn't the final rest of God. The land on this earth is never that final rest. For instance, the author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews and chapter 4, verse 8 For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did. From his. And thus, the words of Jesus, I read them as what we call the declaration of the gospel this morning. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, you know what a yoke is, not an egg yoke, but a wooden beam. Uh, Hewn in that wooden beam is a, a curved place to put over the neck to ride on the shoulders of a man or an animal. And that is to make that person, that animal, able to carry a heavy load. Figuratively, the sense of a yoke came to be known as that which is burdensome. That which symbolizes a burden. If you looked at a yoke in a picture and it was being used poetically or figuratively, you go, oh, that means there's a big burden. And so Jesus is saying, you've got a big burden. But you need to get away from that big burden. In fact, if, you're, if that burden's too heavy for you, come to me and I'll give you rest. That is... If you live under my rule, if you live under my lordship, then you'll know rest. But if you continue to rebel, then you won't know this rest. You'll only know unrest in your soul. Because you see, while the law is good, it's a heavy yoke on the neck of, of one who's rebellious against God. Because all it can therefore do is condemn. And so he says, if that's your burden, if you understand that to be your burden, your rebellion against God that makes the law condemn, and thus you live in fear, knowing that a day will come when you'll face God. He says, here's what I'll do. Come to me. I'll put my yoke on you. My rule. My rule. Upon you. And the burden is easy. It's light. Why? Because in giving us this yoke, he changes, Jesus does, our very hearts. And he forgives us of our sins and enables us to trust him. So we're no longer pulling against, but pulling with. It isn't a yoke that's heavy upon us, but a yoke that's light upon us because it's the yoke of Jesus. Because the law came and demanded perfection, and Jesus said, Okay, I'll be perfect for you. The law came and, and condemned us, and Jesus says, I'll take my take your condemnation upon myself, so that you may be free of it. So we're free of all that heavy laden burden of sin. And Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. And then you say, All right, if I'm living in such rest, why do I have to keep fighting? <laughs> If I'm living in such rest, why the great struggle? Well, I don't have the whole answer to that yet. Look me up in glory, and I'll give you the whole answer to that. Better yet, just ask Jesus while you're there. But part of the answer is this that we no longer fight out of struggle, we no longer fight out of fear. We no longer fight out of desperation. But now we fight out of the victory of it. Now when we fight, we go to the Lord Jesus and we say, I'm fighting anger right now. Please help me. Please give me the patience and the presence of mind and the quietness of tongue, Lord Jesus, that you won on the cross. And please give that to me now. God, I'm I'm fighting selfishness. And so we go to him in prayer and we say, Please, Lord Jesus, give to me that interest in others, not myself, that you won on the cross. Thank you for dying for the sin of my own selfishness. Thank you for living righteously so that I could be declared righteous before your Heavenly Father. But now I pray, in the midst of my struggle here, in the midst of this battle against selfishness, that you would grant to me the love and the interest in others that you have already won and enable me to possess that as we're fighting lust to go to him and say, "Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for this sin. Thank you for never lusting." so that as I come to you, I'm coming to the one who is righteous. Now I pray that you enable me to not covet that which isn't mine, that God hasn't given to me. Don't allow me to complain about what I do have, but rather from the victory of the cross, from the victory you won, from your rest, sovereign lordship, give to me. Overrule my own lust and covetousness. And so, you see, now we live from the victory that he won so that even the battles can be light. Now, how do we know that? Hmm. We know that because his word tells us that it is so. And we know that because he's given to us a sacrament, a holy meal, from which he promises to increase our faith and to help us and to give grace to us as we come to him in faith because it was on that night in which he was betrayed that our Lord Jesus took bread and after giving thanks he broke it he gave it to his disciples and he said this is my body which is given for you and in the same way he took the cup And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this is the new covenant in my bloodshed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And what do we remember? Well, of all the things that we could possibly remember, think of this. It was through this that he defeated every enemy. It was through this cross that he defeated the enemies of our souls and the enemies of our culture. It was through this cross that he defeated Satan himself. And so now he says, trust me, I've won. Come to me. Live under my sovereign rule. Live in my rest. Follow me. And you'll know that rest. Let's pray. Father pray for me and for us that you would set aside this bread and this juice in such a way that enables us to think upon Jesus so that we may come to him by faith knowing who he is remembering what he's done and receive his grace even now so that as we face whatever it is that we're fa- facing in life, our biggest fear, our biggest sin, our biggest enemy, whatever really is eating at us, that thing that we think if we ever fell in such a way that it would destroy us. my Father, now we can trust him, that Jesus will help us. For you did not spare your own son but you gave him up for us all and therefore we trust now that you will give us every good thing so father I pray that now we may have the confidence that the victory has been won that we live in that victory and from it and that though we wage war from time to time in battles here and there that the ultimate victory has been won and we live from that and the spoils of the war of Jesus against sin and death that we might live. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church but it's the table of the Lord and he invites to it all those who understand their weakness And their burdens, most especially in sin. And he invites them to come to receive rest from him. You understand yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God. Without hope except in his sovereign mercy. That you receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. to your hearts desire to live from him all the days of your life. So I invite these two sections, to come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right, take a piece of bread, uh, dip it in the cup, and just say to yourself, I'm to live in God's rest. Pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, that's our longing to be with Jesus. Uh, And we do pray, come Lord Jesus. We know when that day comes, and all will be made right, that we will in fact see you as you are and be made like you. And everything in the new heavens, everything on the new earth will reflect you, Jesus. And it will be just as it ought to be, and it will be perfect. Father, till that day we pray you keep us, we pray that you enable us to walk, enable us to do battle and able to do all of that, cognizant of the victory that's been won, that we may live from what you have done, Lord Jesus. And that you would grant to us all the grace and every benefit that is ours in you, that you might be glorified by our lives. Father, for those who are in our congregation who are facing various battles that they're afraid to fight, their biggest fears have been realized in terms of their own lives. I pray you would grant grace to them to help them. Give them that way of escape that you promised that will enable them to hold up under it and be with them. Father, we think of Norm Holmescock as he recovers from his knee surgery, Laura Lewis as she faces hip surgery tomorrow for various others. We pray your help. And Father, for this time of election in our own country, we pray that righteousness will prevail that your will will be done uh, Father we pray for Jim Ryan one of our own as he faces this election himself cause him to walk in godliness and holiness before you and be with him in these days Father be with us grant grace to us as we need that we might walk with you in Jesus name Amen. The response to our benediction this morning is to sing together uh, the doxology. So please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing.